This is the Big Issues Better Pod, acting today for a better tomorrow. I'm not saying people who have a bit expensive house don't work fucking hard, I know they do. But there are, there are reasons why people who are born in this postcode, kids will go on to some of the top jobs, why they'll live longer, why they'll have less police involvement, why they'll never ever experience the criminal justice system unless they're a lawyer or a barrister. And it's not all to do with the fact that they just are better people. For this week's Better Pod, we've been out and about in Glasgow, the home city of performer, activist and Orwell Prize winning writer Darren McGarvey, otherwise known as the rapper Loki. His latest book is about the economic and cultural distance between those who make decisions and the people on the receiving end of them. The social distance between us argues that remote politics has wrecked Britain. But as we find out on our first walking podcast edition of Better Pod, that distance isn't always geographic. In Glasgow's West End, we take a 15-minute walk that brings us from one of Scotland's most deprived areas to one of the most prosperous. Against that backdrop, Darren explains the complex causes and the consequences of inequality. Better Pod's been running for a few weeks now, and we're delighted to see our audience grow. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to help us reach more people with the conversation about acting today for a better tomorrow, please do leave us a review or share the podcast with your friends or through your social media. I'm Laura Kelly, Future Generations Editor at The Big Issue. I lead a team of exciting young journalists from backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in the media. I'm Katerina Sivitinidis. I'm part of the Future Generations team here at The Big Issue. Growing up, journalism to me was a very middle-class job, so I never thought that someone from a working-class family from Glasgow would ever get the opportunities. But here at The Big Issue, being a part of the Future Generations team, I've had a lot of opportunities I don't think I would have gotten if I've done it on my own and that's why the conversation with Darren this episode was really important to me because we spoke about working class people especially in Glasgow in the media and it was very refreshing to see someone I feel like that was just like me do so many great and important things. We're here today outside Pardick Library. I'm here with Darren McGarvey and my colleague Kat. It is a freakishly sunny day here in Glasgow. We're right in the heart of Pardick, uh, which is rated two in the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, which basically means it's one of the most deprived areas in Scotland. I wanted to ask you first, Darren, about your relationship to Pardick and what you think of when you think of this area. Well, I mean, Pardick is pretty well known around, around the city. And it's one of those interesting communities because it's sort of, it's, it's a kind of, it's not, it's a stone's throw away from a completely other world of affluence and yeah. fruit and veg and clean pavements and good transport links. It's a bustling community and on a bright day like this, you might not actually be able to imagine that it ranks so highly on the deprivation statistics. But if you take a walk down the main street, you sort of start to see some of the tropes associated with that, you know, overexposure to gambling advertising, alcohol sales points. Yeah. Even just the air quality here is reduced, you know, because of the, the proximity of all the residents to the roads and the cars and all that. So it's um, for, a, for a sociology student, it's a real 
it's a real treat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure people can hear in the background as we're talking. You can hear the buses coming through. You can hear that traffic, and as you say, that does have uh, you know an impact on the air quality that we're breathing right now. Yeah, and then I mean, we're standing here next to one of the best libraries in in Glasgow, mm. and um, you know, it's it's a fight to keep some of these places open these days. Yeah. So I mean, you've not just got all of that to contend with all the stuff we talked about, but then you're you're, you're potentially removing. Uh, from some of these communities, the only kind of engine room left for any kind of social mobility to occur, where people can come and sit down and not be expected to spend money, where they can learn, um, you know, so it's, it's all sorts of dynamics. It's a challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. Your new book, The Social Distance Between Us, is about proximity, a lot of it. Um, we've talked a bit about the physical proximity there between people in Glasgow, between the kind of really you know working class areas and those really affluent areas. But that's kind of not really what you mean by proximity in the book. Tell me a little bit about what you actually mean by proximity in that context. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it was just, it was during the pandemic really when I was kind of, when, when the unifying theme of the book really hit me, when we talked about social distance and obviously that was meant, it was reiterated every day in relation to um, keeping two metres apart from people to stop the spread of the virus. Yeah. But I really sort of hit home that proximity was something that I had always been writing about. I'd always been trying to sort of, you know, um, translate the experiences of one social class into language for another social class and be that bridge between the two worlds. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I started thinking about that theme of distance and applying it more abstractly. So thinking about, you know, why why were some of the why are so many of the social policy decisions made by politicians? Uh, so poor yeah. even when they want to do good yeah. and then you start thinking well actually it's because they're devised remotely you know so it's weird because you, you, you know you, you, would, you would get a, a plumber wants to come around and look at the broken toilet before they set about it you know a doctor wants to see you before they diagnose you mm. and a reporter goes to the scene of the crime before they write up the story and we do this because we realise that you need proximity to those things to do your job properly but for some reason we have politicians who all come from middle class backgrounds or are privately educated, coming up with social policy around welfare, um, you know, that's affecting single mothers, people of colour, all sorts of backgrounds that they have no insight into. And then we wonder why there's these successive waves of mayhem, you yeah. know, and, and even with good intentions, you need to be close to the action. So we've moved a few minutes down the road here and we're now standing outside Pardick Job Centre. This seems an appropriate place for us to stop and talk a bit about inequality and a bit about class. Yeah. So the people using this service we're outside right now are among those frequently blamed for their own choices. And you talk a bit about that in the book. Why do you think that that's misguided? Well, I mean, it's misguided at a number of levels. Um, for the people who are just happen to be out of work because they've been made unemployed, they've been made unemployed as a result of an economic decision that someone else has taken at some other level. Um, so they can't take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And then for those who fall into the bracket of long-term unemployed, usually there is uh, contextual circumstances to be considered, which the uh, Department of Work and Pensions is not always set up to really take proper account of. Um, which is understandable, obviously, but I think really it's a case where we have a welfare state which is very much a kind of analogue infrastructure 
for a, a sort of digital problem. Yeah. Which, you know, forgive the analogy, but it's like poverty has changed, the nature of work has changed. We live in a much more flexible labour market now, which means flexibility for employers, but not for workers. And, yeah. and so that means they're overexposed to economic shocks, changes. And then obviously that, that that's compounded by the fact that we have a welfare state which has been very much kind of based on the model of, of, of sort of American insurance companies, you know, mm -hmm. the, the worst corrupt American insurance companies that deny people their insurance even though they're legally entitled to it. Yeah. And again, this is not because people, it's not because people in government hate the poor. It's because um, they don't understand a world where £20 is a matter of life and death for some people or a sternly worded letter throws somebody into an anxiety fit. Obviously, the other thing about here is that the people who, who are here are probably not coming from the same backgrounds, right? It's We judge people on as though they have all come from the same and they haven't. There's like the class divide hits you from the very moment you're born, oh, right? Oh no, of course. I mean, even just, uh, you know, the, the, your, your weight when you're born is a predictor of your health outcomes later. Yeah. And that's different depending on what sort of postcode you're born in. Yeah. And then that, that then becomes formalised and accelerated in the education system where what school you go to really depends on how much money you have. If mm -hmm. you don't have a lot of money, you go to the school on your doorstep. If you have a lot of money, you know, you have a lovely marketised education system where you can just move house, buy a new house, drive up house prices and parachute your child into a high performing school. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons these schools are high performing is because they exist in a socioeconomic context which is not under such immense strain. And so stress isn't expressed in the classroom as often. There tends to be more standardised behaviour, so there's less learning difficulties to manage and there's more resources per head of pupil often, particularly in the independent sector, which is twice the amount of money on a per pupil in there than you'll get in a state sector. So um, people talk about class and, 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 and I don't think they really understand when we're talking about inequality. The, the system is very much gamed for people who are born into the right postcodes, although they don't detect the advantages because they're also furnished with myths of meritocracy, which account for why they do better. Yeah. But actually, if you really examine it, you see that being born in the right postcode, which is just by chance, obviously, uh, has an immense impact on, on what your outcomes will be. And I just think that that is absolutely undeniable at this point. One of the things you do in the book is turn the idea of class war on its head for me. And I loved that. So we think of class war only whenever we hear the working classes rising up. Yeah. And you kind of turned that and looked at it from a different angle. Tell me a little bit about yeah, that. I mean, what, what, what was austerity? That was class war. It was saying, look, we're going to cut your public services that we, we set up because we know you're poorer and you depend on them. Uh, we're going to cut uh, health budgets, which we know is part of the reason why lower class people have got healthier, why infant mortality was down, mm. why life expectancy increased. We're going to cut all that. Uh, we're not going to hold any of the people responsible for the crisis to account. They're going to continue to earn bonuses. And, uh, and, and we're going to... Can, can, we're going to work in collusion with mainstream media to make sure that you buy this mm -hmm. and that you swallow this because you are plebs and this is what you deserve. And that is just class war of the most vindictive nature, waged uh, asymmetrically every direction. You're mm -hmm. just absorbing it. And then the minute that somebody talks about free internet, 
the media call that class war. Yeah. And it's like, hang on a minute. Hang on a wee minute. I, that that sounds like that sounds like a retaliatory strike at yeah. the very least if we're using the militaristic language. So it's 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 really one of the things I want to do with the book is reframe the whole conversation as as it's not it shouldn't just be a, a, a well I'm going to film documentaries about poor people. I want to do a documentary about middle class people. I want to do one that examines all the advantages they enjoy. Yeah. Um. And 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 re tip the whole discussion on its head because um, it, it's, uh, it's 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 too. It's too much emphasis on the lifestyles of the poor, the decisions of the poor, from every angle, they get it in the net. Do they start believing in internalising the lies and criticising each other? Mm-hmm. When actually what you're talking about is a political class that intuitively understands the needs of the middle class because they are middle class and that's really how the system works, I think. We've now moved over to a newsagent that's across the road from the Partick Job Centre. We can see a lot of newspapers on the front. Now, one thing that you mentioned in your book is that more than half of the UK's journalists are from privately educated backgrounds. And me as a working class journalist, completely agree that it's really hard industry to break into unless you're from a privileged background. Do you think there's more space in the media for working class journalists? It's complicated because it's an industry that's currently in decline due to the uh, digital revolution and everything moving online and some publications and some uh, companies have the resources to navigate that successfully, you know, the big news conglomerates um, and others have struggled and so they're downsized and assets stripped and, you know, the jobs just go. If you're looking at the journalism not from a business standpoint though, but you're looking at it from a, a journalistic point of view, an ethical point of view, an information ecosystem point of view, there is a strong argument that one of the reasons the discussion about social inequality in Britain has become so skewed is partly because that lack of proximity that a lot of people who are privately educated have to issues like addiction, poverty, homelessness. and so. Uh, subconsciously those people draw from a kind of curdled well of assumption that's kind of drilled into them through the institutions that they engage with as they rise up the rungs of the ladder from their household to school to university to the, the profession and that that trajectory is pretty much unbroken for a lot of them in fact some of their schools have been selected by their parents because they function as pipelines directly into these industries and they're also very highly networked uh, and what I mean by that is that the reason a person like Boris Johnson can survive being mediocre as a leader, even less, uh, even less exceptional just as a man, is, is because of how highly networked he is. He has powerful friends in every level of society. And so this, this, this kind of uh, lubricates, <laughs> lubricates his uh, being able to just squeeze himself through every scrape that he encounters. So you've got that side of the issue around journalism. The question then is, are there editors out there or proprietors out there who are interested in really getting into the weeds of what social inequality is about? Because if they are, then they can actively encourage people to apply for jobs who come from those kind of backgrounds. There are some good examples out there of, of, of class being taken into consideration within the umbrella of diversity. But unfortunately, 
the diversity agenda for some papers just means racial, gender, ethnic, religious, sexual diversity, and that is important. That is really important, but what you find is it's a middle class black person, it's a middle class woman, it's a middle class, and that can sound like a snidey thing to say, but it's true. I mean, if you're, if you're just looking at the demographics, that's, that's the facts, and it's the same in parliament as well. And I also love the fact that you, when you speak, you still use your Glaswegian accent, because I feel like a lot of Scottish people in the media, they tend to tone down their accent quite a lot. Mm. And I was just wondering that, do you think there's an almost prejudgment towards you? As someone in the media, as, as many programmes and stuff that you've done, do you think there's a little prejudgment to you because oh. of your Glaswegian accent? Absolutely. I mean, and this is this is something a lot of people who, who speak with what is referred to as a sort of thick accent, right? What's interesting is that that's also born out in all of the language attitude data. So actually, Glasgow ranks very low, along with Liverpool and Birmingham. Those are three areas where, you know, our accents are not very popular. Now, uh, there were studies conducted which w was really into ethnicity that showed that even just saying hello on a telephone or a job interview, somebody's making a snap judgment. And the same applies to class. So there's a lot of people who are doing phone interviews or they're turning up and as soon as they talk, a subconscious judgment is formed. What's interesting though is that these judgments are formed often by people who aren't that socially sophisticated. They've just grown up in a culture where they've been told the way they talk is the proper way to talk, but that's the only way they can speak. Whereas I can speak their language, I can speak the language of a, I can talk to a homeless person, I can talk to a politician, I did interview Tom Hunter, a billionaire. Um, I can do all that in one day and then go and do question time. Uh, I, I do feel like there's a lot of association to Glasgow and working class, especially in the media. So do you think that should, you know, if, if you're going to be like, say, a journalist or a media person, do you think you should keep your accent to your roots? I would encourage people to do what feels right to them. I wouldn't be a hard liner about it. I mean, who am I to say? So, say someone's got a good opportunity and part of it means modifying some aspect of how they present socially, right? And doing the dance. Do the dance. Just remember you're doing the dance and integrate that into your kind of knowledge of culture. Coming up. We walk to one of Scotland's wealthiest areas and ask why Darren has embraced his anger as an agent of change. Did you know you can get the big issues, award-winning journalism through your door every week? As a Better Pod listener, you can sign up to get a four-week subscription to the best in news, politics and culture for just £12. And we'll even throw in a stylish tote bag for free. Go to bigissue.com slash bigpod to find out more. Okay, so we've done, what, a 10, 15 minute walk since we were down in Pardick. Um, we're now up in Hindland. Uh, this area ranks as a 10 on the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, which basically that index runs from one to 10. So we are now in one of the most uh, affluent and privileged bits of Scotland. Mm. We are standing outside a house that recently sold for 1.5 million pounds. So that's quite a big difference to anywhere in Pardick. Yeah. So while, while we're here, I kind of want to move on to the second part of your book. I want to move on to the stuff where we talk about the effects of that lack of proximity mm. and what it means for people when they don't uh, have that understanding of those social issues. Mm -hmm. 
So what I'd like to know first of all from you is how can you kind of remain distant when you live cheek by jowl with the people, you know, 15 minute walk from the people just down the road? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite hard to imagine how you could come to some like really wacky conclusions about the true nature of social inequality and its roots in the country's economic structure and political decisions uh, when you live so close to, to it. But actually, if you even just think, consider um, the, the, the design of this community, the roads in and out, the transport links, no one from here really has to interface with a poor community on their way into the city centre and back. Um, whether you take the bus, whether you take the train, whether you drive. Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing that commute every day or increasingly working from home, it's, it's actually quite natural to, 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 to begin to draw on a kind of well of assumptions about certain things and can kind of confuse um, how the system is configured to, um, to, to, to accommodate you with your own hard work and your own merit. And obviously hard work and merit is, is, is obviously important. I don't think, I'm not saying people who have a bit expensive house don't work fucking hard, I know they do. But there are there are reasons why people who are born in this postcode, kids will go on to some of the top jobs, why they'll live longer, why they'll have less police involvement, why they'll never ever experience the criminal justice system unless they're a lawyer or a barrister. And it's not all to do with the fact that they just are better people. I'm sorry. <laughs> Looking around us, we are standing beside some beautiful cherry blossom. It is a noticeably leafy place. <laughs> Aside from some of the shouting That's in the like background. That's like a crime wave here. <laughs> yeah, the guy two feet tall shouting, that'll yeah. be in the front of the Hindland Gazette. <laughs> yeah, but you can definitely, I mean, the, the listeners will be able to tell this is a quiet, comfortable place. It's a beautiful place to live. It's, um, it's uh, the air is cleaner. You can just tell straight away. Aesthetically, it makes sense. It's, it's nice, it looks good. All of these things have a m massive mental health premium straight away because the, 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 the thing about walking out your door here every day is that you know you're safe. And this is something, you know, that, that uh, people who, walk, who, who, who live in more deprived communities they might not recognise it, but they live in a certain state of constant awareness and vigilance and anxiety about what's going on around here. Do you know what I mean? I heard the story the other day, or what's that? Or I hear a raised voice in the next uh, flat, or police sirens, and all of this just leads to a kind of, you know, a, a mental health debt that's expressed later in um, various health problems, you know, because the stress levels are always higher and that does affect learning, decision making, it affects uh, even just how, how our bodies metabolise food and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you get into it. But I mean, if you want to buy the idea that just people here are better and smarter, then fine, go for it. <laughs> if you don't, right, say you don't want to buy the idea, say, say the people who are around us in, in these beautiful houses, if they want to understand more, if they want to decrease that sense of distance, is that possible for them? Can they do that? Yes, they can. They can, they can make more informed choices about their media literacy and um, for a start, because this would be, for, for people here, that's the main information source. Is, it's, it's the world is being beamed in to their mind with them in mind, mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, so uh, then it's also about, you know, sometimes holding your nose at the election. And, uh, you know, may maybe you do feel politically homeless, you know, mm -hmm. there's real homelessness out there. So maybe don't use such a crass fucking phrase to explain how it feels the first time the whole political system is not configured to your specific tastes. Yeah. I mean, have you ever heard that and it's ridiculous and you're like, I'm politically homeless? Are you fucked? Do you know what I mean? Like, you're just experiencing what everyone else always experiences, which is... You hold your nose and vote for the least terrible fucking thing, you know? And uh, I like what the way Irvin Welsh puts it, you know, if you've done well, vote with other people in mind, and if, you, if you've not done well, vote with yourself in mind. And I think people need to think more altruistically sometimes about how, how they're casting their vote. Because yeah. if, you, if you live here, you're taking care of whether you vote Labour or Tory. Right, because yeah. it's it's part of the orthodoxy. The two, the duopoly has to guarantee the top twenty percent of the income distribution is on board. That's how they win an election because nobody else is voting really. Yeah, and uh, so the, the idea of a choice for people here, it, it, politics is just a kind of window to exhibit your preferences. It doesn't really affect you, man. You might pay more tax, you might pay less, but it's, it's not a matter of life and death, is it? You did a brilliant thread on Twitter after you had done the audiobook reading mm. of, of your book. And you talked in that about the emotion that drove the book being anger. Yeah. Why anger? First book, I was at a different place in my life. You know, I was flying high in my recovery. I'd very much adopted that. Um, you know, highly tolerant, highly personable, move like water through society, kind of uh, as a result of becoming slightly more prosperous and moving into a new community and becoming a dad and all that. And uh, then when I started to go back out into society, as, as austerity started to set in, I started realising some of the anger that I caution people against is legitimate. And while it's not always expressed or channeled in the most healthy way, um, my role should not be to caution people about being angry. It should be about arming them with arguments, language, responses, insights that help them to take that anger and do something productive with it. And, um, you know, like the amount of funerals that I've been to just in the last few years of people who are my age or younger who died because of a dodgy tablet that they took or died because of respiratory system collapse or their liver failed or... They, they, they hung themselves or they threw themselves onto the River Clyde. I mean, it's unbelievable. And that, 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 that there is a, an anger that builds and a sadness that builds. So I think this time I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it not as I want to enter the debate as like a fair-minded person who's trying to broker like consensus. I'm, I'm, I'm stepping into the class war environment and I'm saying like, okay, you, you've been given these people are hiding now for 10 years, right? So I, I'm, 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 I want to be one of the, I want to contribute to landing a blow back and saying, no, sometimes a wee bit of anger, a wee bit of vitriol, sometimes a wee bit of hyperbole. And the grand scheme of things might be something that rouses people to act. Um, so I, the book, I'm fair in the book, but in other places, I just, I decided not to breathe through my anger, not to conceal it, decided to honor it and, and honor of the people that we've lost, you know, who, whose voices still need to be heard.
going to ask you the three questions that we ask everyone on the podcast. What's one bit of advice that you wish you'd known before? That even when you think you're speaking polite, you still sound like you're from a housing scheme. That was a sore one for me. <laughs> people just people think if you don't say anything properly, then you're just oh, that, that yeah. working class. Yeah. Nothing. What's one piece of art, whatever it's a book, TV show, um, film, that you gives you hope for the future? I always say this when people ask me about books, and it's an unusual one because a lot of people don't know this book, right? But. Um, Robin Cook, who used to be the Foreign Secretary and then he was the leader of the House. He was part of Blair's government, early government, in the lead up to Iraq. He died, right, but he wrote this book called Point of Departure. And it was basically him. It was his insight into the whole lead up to the Iraq war and the battle he was having with his conscience as he started to realise that, like, we were going to go ahead with it, even though it wasn't quite the right thing to do. And, and, and I always looked to that book one, because you can open it at any page and there's something interesting in it, but also just because you can slip into this idea that all politicians are the same, or all journalists are the same, or all somebody's the same, you know, and I always find that to be a book that's really, like, about uh, people who have integrity and who stand by their principle, even though he would have done well if he'd have stayed in the government. He resigned and he made a powerful speech about it right to everybody's face, and aye, I would say that. And final question. What's one thing that our listeners can do today for a better tomorrow? Get organised. Yeah. yeah. And that's a broad sweeping statement. Eh? Somebody might be sitting there and then just start tidying up. <laughs> <laughs> Darren McGarvey says get organised. <laughs> <laughs>